Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love, and all things literary. Our guest today is Stephanie Danler. Her novel, Sweet Bitter, swirls and crashes around its central character, Tess, who arrives in New York City, naive, expectant, and yearning for new experiences. The day she lands a job at one of the most celebrated restaurants in the city, she's thrust into a chaotic, renegade ecosystem, one that sparks her sexual and culinary awakening. I'd love to welcome Stephanie Danler to the show this week. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. Thanks for being... Oh, I've said that already. But um, (laughs) I just wanted to say how much this book resonated with me, and we'll get into why. Uh, but first of all, if you read a little, uh, we'll just get straight into it. I think that'll give everyone a sense of just how sexy and incredible this novel is. Ignore him. That's what I did. When Jake came into family meal late and took his seat next to Simone, when he pulled up on his bike outside the front window, when he called harshly out for bar mops, I looked away. But I started to hear things, all of it unverifiable and improbable. Jake was a musician, a poet, a carpenter. He'd lived in Berlin, he'd lived in Silver Lake, he'd lived in Chinatown. He was halfway through a PhD on Kierkegaard. They called his apartment the Opium Den. He was bisexual, he slept with everyone, he slept with no one. He was an ex-heroin addict, he was sober, he was always a little drunk. He and Simone were not a couple though their magnetic, unconscious way of tracking each other seemed to indicate otherwise. I knew they were very old friends and that she'd gotten him the job. Some nights, a cherubic strawberry blonde that Sasha called Nessa Baby came and sat in front of Jake at the bar as service was winding down. He knew part of his job was to be looked at. He was a quiet bartender. There was a submissiveness to his beauty that was nearly feminine, a stillness that made one want to paint. When he worked the bar, he submitted. 
Women and men of all ages left business cards, phone numbers with their tips. Guests gave him gifts for no reason. That kind of beauty. If he rolled up his shirt sleeves, you could see the edges of tattoos that spoke to another private body he kept. It was the sight of his arm resting on the beer tap that changed me. The beer was acting up. The keg was probably too new, not cold enough. Just foam, no beer. Jake let the foam pour while he talked to a guest. The drain was full of foam. It ran over to his feet, a spreading white pool. His sleeve was rolled up, the tendons of his forearm tensed from shaking cocktails. I remembered the static shock when I touched him. I felt it in my mouth. His inappropriate forearm and the foam cascading, his manner too casual, too condescending. That's a lot of beer to waste, I said. My voice surprised me, ringing out over my vow of silence. He looked at me. Perhaps it was raining that night, a stifling tropical storm. Perhaps someone struck a match and held it to my cheek. Perhaps someone cleaved my life into before and after. He looked at me, and then he laughed. From that moment on, he became unbearable to me. Thank you. I think everyone will hear just how much tension there is in that and how, well, I guess I can tell everyone that that tension sustains the whole novel and it's so beautiful. And we'll definitely get into the sexuality of the book a bit later, but we'll let you warm up a bit and have a (laughs) glass of wine first. So I guess backtracking, there's a part in the book where... um, one of the servers asks Tess, the main character, kind of what what she's doing in New York. And um, for you, like when you came, did you have something in mind? Like, did you have that other thing? Because I know as a waitress too, I mean, I was one for so many years, you always feel like you have to have another answer. Either you're here, you're studying, you're trying to be an actor, a singer you have, or a performance artist, you have some drive because you always want to make the waitressing or the serving just be a means to an end. Right. So how was that for you? My trajectory was not um, not the traditional one because I did move here to become a writer. And so I was fresh from my undergraduate degree in creative writing. I had parts of what I thought would be a novel. It was... Um, what was it about that first novel? Actually, cocaine. So there's... Oh, wow. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was, about, um, it was about New York City and about... Um, privilege and about drugs, but very, very different. And it had been my thesis in undergrad. And I had that like idiotic naivete where I thought that I would arrive here and finish it. So you were writing about New York without having ever been here or had no, you visited? I, I had lived here during summers since okay. I was 18. Yeah. So my, I was not like Tess. I wasn't quite so new. I'd also been working in restaurants since I was 15 years old. It's the first job I had ever had. So I had enough experience to get hired at a restaurant like Union Square Cafe. So when I arrived, I was like, I'm a writer. I just work at Union Square. But what happened to me, which also happens to Tess, is that sort of falling down the rabbit hole, falling in love with this industry. And I stopped saying I was a writer. And I meant it. 
my life was incredibly full and I was a server. Well, I wasn't even a server. I was a back waiter. That was plenty. And then I left and I went to wine school and I was a beverage director. And then I was a general manager. And my identity was so wrapped up in being a food professional that I didn't need to say anything else. And that's very unique to New York and LA. And it's also something that's changed a lot. In 2006, this was just starting to happen. But now it's perfectly acceptable to leave an Ivy League education and say, I'm going to become a mixologist, which is not a real thing, yeah. but seems to be uh, a skill set at this day and age. Um, so I did have something else, and I kept writing, but I didn't need it when in New York at the end of the day. And what, where, when did that shift? When did you realize that you had a new story that you wanted to tell? A new story, meaning? Meaning this story, yeah. When did the fragments of this come together? So I had been working in restaurants um, in New York City from 22 to 29 years old, so seven years. And I was... I've had every single job, but at that point I was running the beverage program for a small restaurant group and the GM of a restaurant, and we were continuing to expand. And I was looking at spaces for a retail wine store, and I was so excited, and I saw my life kind of rolling out in front of me with all of its permanence, and I was going to be an owner in this business, and it felt very much like the culmination that I'd been working towards. And I was just struck with what I call despair, this like deep soul despair, just unsettled about it. And I thought, if I don't write this book, I'm never going to do it. I'll never, never, once I open another business, this is my last chance. And so I left that career and it was terrifying, and everyone thought I was insane, but I had the idea for a female coming-of-age novel. Um, there are so few of them, and I really think that you have, sometimes you'll see the 14-year-old coming-of-age novel or the 18-year-old coming-of-age novel, but 22 is like such a huge pivotal age now for women. It's sort of our 20s have become an extended adolescence where we're allowed to not know what we're doing and not fully take responsibility for our actions, but we're, act, we're adults. These things count. There are consequences. You're sort of autonomous for the first time, and I hadn't seen it written about. And then I had this expertise in restaurants that I'd been working on for so many years. And once I wrote the first sentence, you will develop a palette Everything exploded from there. The coming of age and the restaurant world and the palette for food and wine and what else can a palette be for? For desire, for intimacy, for family, for being an urban creature, learning to survive in New York City. Um, and Sweet Bitter came quickly. Technically, people say it was quick. It did not feel quick. But in uh, the two years I was in my graduate program, well, there is such an awakening there. And having had it myself, um, I worked in so many restaurants and then I worked at one, Jelena in LA, which I was one of the first servers there kind of to open it. And it was such an exciting moment. And I've heard you talk about kind of the, the 
how special it was to work somewhere that had an ethical component mm-hmm. to it. Like we don't often think of working as in a restaurant as having a set of values and an ethos that everyone works um, behind. And I had that experience and I had my whole palette and everything kind of developed from that point. Um, what was that like for you, having worked in many restaurants and then going to this one place that shifted it all and um, I mean not I don't want to compare you to your character but I'm wondering if when this kind of explosion happened for you in the same way yeah it definitely happened at Union Square Cafe and it's so true that this book would be meaningless if I wrote it about a restaurant where you clocked in and you clocked out and the servers turned over every three months. There's a reason that places like Danny Meyer's restaurants or Jelena have very low turnover and why they're known for their service. And it's because they've invested this job with an extra layer of meaning. And I think that if you want to attract highly creative, highly intelligent, highly compassionate people you have to give them something to work for. You have to be growing them and expanding them. And for so long, historically, in restaurants, servers were throwaway. They're instantly replaceable. I can pull someone off the street and they can do your job in two seconds. And Danny really changed that. He invested in the human element or the 51% or 49% of the job being mechanics. He valued your empathy above Mm. all else. And to be a part of something like that, I mean, I think I write about it in the book and it was true to my experience. You feel selected. You feel like you're a part of an exclusive club or society. And it's sometimes hard to relate to people outside of it. The danger of it, of course, being that your world gets very narrow very quickly. This private club becomes everything and you lose your big picture perspective whether you do have a goal outside the restaurant or not and that's when things can get tricky or toxic I Mm. think I'm also thinking just sticking on that because I feel like I gained a psychology degree Mm -hmm. in my time there and this idea that I mean at Jelena specifically we were equals to the guests and that was Mm -hmm. the first that was the shift. It wasn't like we were just there to serve. It was that our opinions mattered. We were individuals. And the the guests almost had to rise to the occasion or broaden their experience of dining. I mean, it, and the truth is, it's just the way we should treat human beings anyway. But somehow that has been lost in the like restaurant world. But I feel like it's come coming back where you go and you actually see the person as a human being who you want to talk to. And that was a real shift for me there. Yeah, and um, I saw that at Union Square and at all of Danny's restaurants. But when you have such a highly competent, highly educated staff, the guest is there to give themselves over to you. You're really an ambassador of an experience. At Jelena, you're giving the Jelena experience to someone, and really the guests' needs are second to that. Um, For so long, it was the customer's always right, the customer's always right, and the service people were the second-class kind of submissive Mm. citizens there. Um, I don't think it has totally changed, 
but it definitely has been a huge revolution yeah, in training. I mean, talking about uh, like those perfect nights when you're, uh, you know, in the restaurant and it's almost like there's a synchronicity. And mm-hmm. I remember having nights where, you know, whether it was a Friday or Saturday night at 11, the place is packed and everyone is on mm-hmm. and it's a sexy crowd and there's like a movie star out the back and there's kind of an energy. Um, how would you describe those nights for yourself? I, I think that was an excellent description but I think um, I think of them as a ballet I think of them as a dance and some nights it's flawless and everyone is in sync and to me unfortunately I think I remember mostly the nights where there's a snag um, especially managing you often have this um, bird's eye view of what's happening in the restaurant and you see how one table is slowing down in the back and that's going to put the next table over then we're going to crush the bar then we're going to crush the cooks and the night is being thrown off kilter and you see your servers slowly veering in that very like moody angry aggressive direction those are the nights I remember, but those smooth, flawless nights, it's everyone is engaged. The guests are engaged. The servers are engaged. Everyone is present. The machinery is just humming along, and you don't even have to do anything. But they are rare, I think. And, and often fueled by, there is a sweet spot, isn't there, where... I mean, I loved it in the book where it's like the one shift drink. And then as you go on, you realize that's, that was bullshit. Like <laughs> everyone's drinking all the time. Or do, um, and there is that point where you're buzzed and it's, you, you've got it together. And then like, like one of your friends, you're like, oh, he's too drunk. Like shit, Sam's like had one too many. And like everyone helping each other out. Of course. But talk to me about... Um, the family that you created, like people, it's, it, it's a real family in this book because, you know, you piss each other off and yet you're kind of there for them. And how in this novel does it translate like to the, the hours that they're on in the restaurant versus when they go to the park bar? Mm-hmm. They I think the most interesting thing about restaurants is how immediate the family is, and that's been true of every experience I've ever had. After you go through your initiation rites, you are in this family. Um, it is a lot like being in the trenches with someone. I think often about like military uh, metaphors when I think of serving. And then in the book, I really tried to explore also how temporary those bonds are in a lot Mm. of ways, how surface they can be to work with people for a year that you don't know their last name and you don't know whether they have a good relationship with their parents or what they majored in in undergraduate. So much of the restaurant happens in the present tense. And I think that that is what gives it its intensity and also its the fleeting nature. Um, I think that what happens in Park Bar and what happens with the shift drinks is when the real bonding happens. You have this like highly adrenalized state that you're all in for 10 hours where you can't even really see or process each other and everything is half of a conversation. You don't get to finish your thoughts. And then 
it's just you. All of the guests are in bed. Everyone's asleep, and you. Everyone's slowly unwinding together and unpacking, and that is when you really actually become a family. Um, and it happens to coincide with a lot of bad behavior, but which is very fun when you're reading about it yes. in the book. <laughs> and I think it's fun when you're yeah when you're it. doing it. I can't it. remember, but I think it was very fun. Um, and so while there's this sort of sadness about those bonds being temporary, I also can say that I am, and I'm sure you have the same experience, actually. I still have my restaurant families from every single restaurant I've worked at, including the first one when I was 15, when I go back there and see people that are still there. Yeah. Well, one of the most, well, there are really three three fascinating characters in the book that kind of are all very entwined and I'm thinking of Simone right now and it's funny because I was reading it and in the book Tess the main character is kind of like I don't want to say at the end to give anything away but she's about she's 37 isn't she Mm -hmm. Simone and I'm 35 nearing that and I thought oh what would it be like if I was still at the restaurant Mm mm-hmm And there's some really eloquent um, conversations in there that I almost forgot that you wrote because they seemed so kind of just taken from life. And one of them I might read and ask you to just uh, comment on it. Um, So this one is incredible. So Simone's talking and she says, aging is particular. You have a moment of relevancy when the books, clothes, bars, technology, when everyone is speaking directly to you, expressing you exactly. You move toward the edge of the circle, and then you're abruptly outside the circle. Now what do you do with that? Do you stay, peering backward, or do you walk away? I mean, it goes on, but I thought you captured it so beautifully. Why was it important to show kind of the difference between the young, hopeful girl and the woman who stayed? Um, There is in Tess the younger, um, hopeful girl, so much ambition and so much drive and possibility. Her life is largely unwritten. And I think that Simone serves as a mentor to her and a a kind of goal. But through the process of the novel, Tess begins to question this goal because what happens to that ambition when it's stifled? What happens to that romanticism um, when it fails repeatedly? And what happens when this life that's supposed to give you freedom becomes a trap? And in my experience, that's where bitterness comes from. And we all have met those servers that have turned bitter. And it was so important to me that I get out before I fell out of love with the job or before it became the golden handcuffs, as another character refers to it, before I became trapped by the money um, and not able to find not able to find my way out into another field. And so I think you can stay in restaurants forever, to be perfectly honest. You have to grow. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. And Simone has been a server. She's been um, in the same place 
for 20 years. And I think that that's probably disastrous for anyone, but for a person like Simone, who was once like Tess, very hopeful and seeking and open and questioning, that's what has turned her rather manipulative and into into someone that can't be trusted. Mm. There's also a fascinating play in the book. It's, there's a tension in there all the time, and it's about beauty and what that means. And for Tess, the character, I found it so interesting how she kind of over the course of the novel is has to grapple with what it means to be a beautiful young girl and yet how, how long is she going to uh, rely on that? And Jake, the, the gorgeous brooding man you heard about earlier. Nightmare. A nightmare, nightmare. yeah, nightmare, <laughs> nightmare. Um, you know, he's actually quite observant of that, isn't he? How she uses that as currency almost without knowing Absolutely. it. And he is looking out for her in those scenes when he's warning her. Um, That's it. It's almost, I remember kind of walking around as a waitress going, and I have a thing, a mantra in my head uh, saying, this is not who I am. This isn't who I am. This isn't who I am. It was quite intense. And I was like, holy shit. And then there was a point where, you know, anything you are doing, it is what you are. Absolutely. You know, it's like when I was in LA and I would go to auditions because I wanted, embarrassingly wanted to be an actress. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, really? Come on. I cannot <laughs> do an accent. Be, you didn't want to be an actress, just so we're clear. No, like, I, I didn't realize. I realized I didn't want to very fast. Yeah, of course. But <laughs> I remember there, that there was that moment where I was on, like, a, the Disney lot. And, you know, it's so exciting to just get on the lot. I remember keeping the stickers from, like, CBS because I just made it in under the gate, you know, the boom. I was like, I'm in. And I remember going up and seeing, you know, going for an audition for, like, Entourage or something and seeing just a line of girls coming out of the casting office. And we all looked the same. And I remember standing in that line going, I'm not like them. Like to myself, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. They've all come, you know, they're all from, no, you know. And I was like, then I had a moment I thought, who do you think you are? Like you are not better than them. You're just, if you are in that line, you are, you're that. Is that what you want to be? And there's nothing wrong with that. But it was just those similar kind of um having to acknowledge that what you're doing is what you are at that period. This is really interesting, and I I haven't even articulated this to myself, but there is something. I think what you're talking about is, is growth. When you realize that talk is not enough and that action is actually the only currency, mm. to use the word. Um, and I think that Jake at this point has become all talk in the book and Tess realizes that by his refusal to take action not to give anything away but when she sees that he's truly stuck and that everything he's said to her is really rhetoric um, and great ideas and very seductive but that's when she's able to take action it's not enough to say which we have all heard a thousand times, I deserve better, I deserve better, this is not who I am. 
it's the act of walking away that defines you and that's it Mm -hmm. until that point you are not someone that deserves better I've never, uh, yeah, I've never talked about that before, but it is interesting the way we try to protect ourselves when really how we spend our minutes is who we are. The choices that we make that we think are so innocuous and meaningless are becoming our moral fiber. Mm-hmm. And, and who we spend time with. Right. And she's realizing that throughout the novel. That's a huge part of her coming of age and disillusionment and empowerment I I hesitate to use the word empowerment for Tess all the time because it sounds it's a little too like point A to point B transformation and she's not perfect or fixed by the end of the novel but she has become empowered she does have a voice and she does take action Mm -hmm. I love how how subtle the arc is and yet how riveting it is I think that's an incredible feat in any novel to have it be so subtle yet in her and we understand as the reader how huge an awakening it is and yet she's not you know nothing no one's had like a shark bite or anything you know what I mean like it's just completely her inner kind of acknowledgement Um, another part I really loved and wish I'd learned earlier is there's a really lovely moment between her and Simone where Tess is like, I just need to have, like, the great sex is everything. Like, this idea that she's having it and it's dark and brutal and it's pushing her to all her limits. It's so exciting. And yet the older woman is, I mean, Tess can't even fathom it, but she's like, great sex isn't everything. Uh, Can you talk a bit about that, why it was so important to have that exchange in the book? Yeah, um, sex is so central to the awakening of her palate. Um, It's such a formative experience, I think, to take ownership of your sexuality and to not apologize for it. And whether it happens when you're 18 or 22 or 35, whenever that moment happens, I've seen it and experienced it. I've seen it with my friends, experienced it myself. Um, It's euphoric. And I think that the pleasure and intensity feels like the answer for a moment. And then, as we all know from having lived in the world, it's not intimacy. It's sex and it can sometimes be separate and I think that's what Simone is trying to warn her about that you're not dry it's not pleasure based what you're looking for you're pushing yourself you're growing you're learning um, you're trying to touch the edges but what you're really driving towards is intimacy and it will not lead you there Mm -hmm. it can that's not our girl's journey unfortunately um I think when the two are married, um, fantastic, challenging sex. I think that's important, too. There's a lot of good sex, but then there's sex that changes you and changes your relationship with the world. And um, When I think we can get confused, I mean, even not that long ago, you know, I got very confused. You think that, confused this, experience, like that this experience is 
as profound to the other person as it is to you and you think that that intimacy is in that act but then have a really kind of sharp fall off the cliff when you realize that for that other person even though it was you know as connected as you thought it was that for them it didn't mean what it meant to you yeah absolutely um to be standing out on that ledge alone is always terrifying but I think that there is a lot of power to be found in owning the sex privately owning your pleasure and not making it about need all of the time not about what you need from the other person but letting it be about growing and just saying this is my journey this is about me right now this isn't about whether he's going to call or whether he likes me and I, I you know I'm not encouraging casual sex but I am encouraging um, women to kind of change the narrative around it and to not apologize for it and not It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be moving towards a, a, relationship. a relationship or a union. It, it can be profound still. Yeah, I think that's, you've just said something that I kind of knew inside was the truth, but I hadn't got there yet. I mean, we, I, you know? I don't know that I have gotten there, but it's something I think about. It's definitely, and this is like, the most intense conversation I've ever had about about the novel, but um, I think that it is a huge part of Tessa's struggle is understanding her relationship to sexuality, her own sexuality, um, and how to make it good for her. Mm. We see her in good moments. Like I think that the sex that she's having with Jake, even though everyone knows he's going to break her heart is still so important and I think it's something she'll be grateful for for the rest of her life but the other sex that she has throughout the novel is actually bad for her and breaking her apart and she hasn't understood the difference yet and it's identifying that that will help protect her as she gets older Mm. I think well and I saw in her something I recognized in myself a while you know it was in that where you would drink more almost so you would do the things you would regret. Absolutely. You know, you would take drugs so you would, you like I remember wanting to not be such a good girl. And then right. like in, in the restaurant at Jelena, it was like I was known as like she's going home early, like she's got this. Because I always had the other thing too. I was like I need to get up early so I can write and mm-hmm. this and that. And I did And they're I like, oh, too. so boring, you know. But I loved them, but I couldn't, I couldn't let go of, of the voice that was like this isn't who I am. Mm-hmm. Um and so then, but then there were those moments where you just pushed and pushed and pushed to try and release in some way. So, and I think every, we all, you know, we all do it, but I don't think I need to do that anymore. I, I mean, that's, and that is. Unless a, I'm very repressed again, form. and I really do. <laughs> no, but that's a form of maturity, right? And that is not something that all of us have at 22 or 18 when we begin experimenting with substances. 
they are so liberating. And it's not just cocaine and alcohol. Food is so liberating. Mm. There, There's a lot of overlap between um, methods of intoxication. And f- lust is also very liberating. Anything that blacks out your conscience or the nonstop voices in your head that we are always suffering from and oppressed by all day, that state of free fall is very scary to us when we're sober, but it's not scary to us when we're drunk. Mm. Um, And I think that even though she's reckless, there's an element of bravery to it that I really admire because personally, when I was in my 20s, I actually, I can freely admit, I was very wild in a manner similar to her, but I wanted to write. I was accountable to something else. Um, And then I was in a very serious relationship that turned into a marriage all throughout my 20s. So this is not the exact same story Mm. by any means. Um, But I admire her bravery to to free fall. Yeah. And even when she's pushing it and I'm reading it and I'm going, Tess, don't do it. But I kind of want her to do it because it's what it's there are these moments in the novel where you know she has to go through it. Well, no one knows. This is like I was about to say something, and I think it might be total cliche, so I want to say it better. (laughs) Um, You cannot grow up and become a self-sufficient person until you have touched rock bottom. And in that strength, it's not bestowed on you it's earned just like wisdom is earned and i don't think that people need to be self-destructive by any means but i do think they need to know all sides of themselves and i think that they need to be on good terms with their darkness to be in constant conversation with the drives um that could hurt you because it's when you ignore them that you see uh, real disasters. Yeah, the That's, stifling. Yeah, repression. Um, and Tess does not suffer from that. She's on very good terms with her self-destructive drives. Yeah. Oh, well, well, switching a bit because oh, yeah. I've loved ooh, going there. Uh, another character I love is Mrs. Neely. Mm. Oh, um, we won't give too much away, but she does say something that I really... Um, I appreciated because I think, you know, we can all get wrapped up in food, especially in L.A. and New York mm-hmm. and in Sydney, where I'm from. You know, it becomes very important. And I'm just going to find the quote because what does she say? Um, oh, my gosh. We'll pour it. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Um, so Tess is having a conversation about the Beaujolais and is talking about how it's, you know, like roses and this and that. And I love it when Mrs. Neely says, you know, what's wrong with you kids? <laughs> you know, wine is just to like loosen you up so you dance. And it's almost like sometimes I think we do kind of misinterpret what it's all about. You know, the food is to allow for conversation and connection. Mm -hmm. Like we have that with another human being above the food and the food allows that to happen and the same with wine. But almost like it's been switched in our culture now where the conversation is now about the, you know, 
cucumber gazpacho instead of you know f- the family drama mm-hmm. that's going on what do you think about that that is a, such a great question um there we live in um, a time where food is fetishized to the extreme where it's almost i can't even say the word but it's very painful to be identified as a foodie (laughs) (laughs) terrible um but what you're talking about i think is an education because i see what i see in Tess is that she's undergoing an education in food and wine and first you have to learn the language Mm. then you have to learn the rules then you need to learn the form with which we're talking about it and then you break all the rules right then you can let it go can't you exactly and that's the same with learning about writing you have to learn craft in a very formal way in order to mess it up or in this case, I think that the people that I know who are wine geniuses, who um, master sommeliers or own huge wine stores, it's always, wine is a part of a meal. I drink this table Italian wine every single day, and it's cheap and it's delicious. They come back to square one, but with all the knowledge. Mm. And so I think that right now everyone is so interested in learning about food and wine, so they're very attached to the jargon, and they're very attached to um, kind of the brand names of different appellations or different buzzwords or different ingredients. But the truly educated are always at that point where they're like, it's just food, Mm. it's just dinner. This is not the end of the conversation. Um, it's a means for a conversation. Well, that ties in to something really lovely that I think I learned through my time. And it was, well, firstly, I'm sure you, well, I'd love to know what you think, but coming up against so many people who are so entitled, like there was a, I learned so much, I guess, particularly from Jelena, because there's so many well-known people came in. Mm -hmm. And learning that, the humble people and the graceful people were just so beautiful I mean versus the entitled ones which is a very obvious statement but also how watching how people embodied and lived that mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing in that in the end you just have to be kind right and yeah. whoever you are um, I don't know what my question was well, that's but that's the most valuable lesson in serving and when this is commonly thrown around. Everyone should wait tables. And people mean different things by it. Sometimes they mean the multitasking. I know a lot of um, people who say I won't hire an assistant that hasn't waited tables before. But what I always think is it's the compassion and the humanity aspect. Um, you do end up valuing kindness and sincerity, I think, a bit more than the average person. Mm. you're around you're exchanging energy with so many different kinds of people you usually have like a pretty sharp bullshit detector and there's not often a place for the genuine um our society loves irony and they love sarcasm and they love cynicism but when you're a server very quickly sincerity kindness um genuine 
Mm. You're around, you're exchanging energy with so many different kinds of people. You usually have like a pretty sharp bullshit detector. And there's not often a place for the genuine. Um, Our society loves irony and they love sarcasm and they love cynicism. But when you're a server, very quickly, sincerity, kindness, um, genuine enjoyment, those become your values. And I think that that is what makes them better people. Yeah, and you can see it, and you can see it in the people that you serve too, so fast. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ask two more questions. Fantastic. Just a fun one. Yep. Okay. The master cleanse. Yeah. Why do people do it when they're waiting tables? Oh my god! Because here's the thing about waiting tables that you know. You don't have a choice about your level of physical activity. I remember when I had like tendonitis in my knee and the doctor said, just rest and and don't walk um, for a week. And I was like, well, well that's that, not a real yeah, thing. Yeah, then you can't pay your rent. Yeah, that's, my job depends on me being physically active. And so I have done every cleanse in the world. And I learned that if my servers were doing it when I was managing, I was like, no, no, like, please not on a Friday night. Please do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah. I remember um, my friends too. You'd come in and you'd see this, those containers <laughs> oh, and I'd go, shit. And you'd go, I hope it's not Sam because he goes crazy. Exactly. Like the one you love most. You're like, oh my God, is Sam doing it? He's going to be a wreck totally. by 11. And I'm you're like, so I'm going to have to go to, the, I'm going to have to go to his section because he'll just be like Kramer. Yeah. Like completely berserk. They're all pale and sweaty and or they have like hives. I remember <laughs> one of my surfers did a cleanse and started detoxing detoxing, <laughs> but he was such an alcoholic. No offense, you know who you are if you're listening to this. You are an alcoholic. Um he started swelling. His face started swelling and he had red splotches all over him and I was like you need to go eat a piece of bread and have a beer or I am going to fire you, essentially. Yeah. Um, I'm so happy that you know about oh, that. I, I and read I bet that it was and so I highlighted it. And I was like, I have to. Oh, of course. And the then the servers are talking to their customers about the cleanse mm-hmm. and like the, you know, the servers about to faint. It was, I never did one because I'm not, I get very angry if I haven't eaten regularly. Every, so I, does. It everyone. Out. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, just, <laughs> this is almost like a statement, but I found that ex- I needed that adolescence back. Like the period I had, it was like I had brothers. Like I've never been in such a rude, politically incorrect environment. Um, and that's obviously what is all in this book. Mm-hmm. And how, just how much fun it was. Yeah, I think about that when I think about people that have only worked in offices. And I think where you're stifling that versus a place that really allows you to be the grossest, messiest, most flirtatious version of yourself, um, it's a really safe space to be like that. And then you can clock out and go home and read your Virginia Woolf and be perfectly content. but you get to play when you're at work. There's a there's an element of play and lightness 
that I think is really healthy. And I often... When the aim is often to make the others laugh. Yeah, of course. Like if the whole aim of an eight-hour shift is for everyone to kind of slightly, like, make someone, you know, do something silly or play a trick. Right. But then that trickles down to the guests and they're feeling the fact that the staff is enjoying being there or that the staff is all attracted to each other or that games are happening and people are giggling. And I think that that adds to the atmosphere of a restaurant. There is nothing worse than going to a restaurant where the staff is not interacting at all, where everyone is cold and standing at the hutch just watching the tables looking bored, counting the minutes of their shift. I mean, I'm like getting nauseous thinking about it. So like the priority for me working in every capacity has always been fun. I felt as a server to general manager that my responsibility was to make sure that fun was happening. It's a really hard fucking job. Like it's miserable. It's I'm so like physical. I'd forgotten tubs and like shit is splashing up on my silk top. And I'm like, why do I do this? Why do I do this? And it's because it's fun. Yeah, so fun. Um, okay, so my last question. How has the food scene changed since 2006 for you? And I'd love to hear too about your move to LA and mm-hmm. how different that is. Because it seems, well, yeah, that's a decade. Yeah. Yeah, what are you... what? Yeah, I don't know that they're connected, but let me see as I talk about it, whether they are or not. So in 2003, you have April Bloomfield and David Chang opening up their restaurants in New York, and they are not service-oriented restaurants. They're chef chef as front-of-house restaurants. Seems minor, is major, actually, as it turns out. But it took a while for that revolution to come. In 2006, it was just beginning that being a server was cool, or to say it another way, a proper career. What we've seen since then is nothing short of an explosion, and mostly it's that this subculture is no longer a subculture. I read Kitchen Confidential after I finished Sweet Bitter, and... I realized that what he was exposing was a world that nobody knew about. And now we're just as likely to have cameras inside our restaurants. We've seen it on TV a million times. We're so intimate with the food. I was just traveling in Southeast Asia, and I did a cooking class, and I realized that all of these people were already so familiar. They were like, oh, yeah, turmeric. Oh, yeah, Thai basil. That's opal basil. It's different than Thai basil. And it's because we're such a food-obsessed culture, and it's because we see it on television, and there have been 50 memoirs of the kitchen um, and 50 memoirs of the front of house. And so there really are no secrets anymore in the food industry. And there also is this... um, I don't know that it's been great for service, this influx of people that aren't necessarily built to be servers and I hate that that sounds kind of elitist but I really do think that it has to be in your blood and there are people coming into the restaurant industry that would have never ended up there in a million years and um, I mean they usually don't last very long it's still really good at weeding out the people that can't survive but um, I don't think it's like a cute fun 
thing to be a server. I think that you have to be really dedicated. And I think that it is a, a commitment and a lifestyle and that you are a lifer and you really, I've, I mean, I've never been in another industry. Well, I guess now I'm a writer officially. We can call me that. But, um, you know, I feel a little, a little strange about people that dip their toe in because it is cool to be a server in Brooklyn. Well, I, on that note, I think you captured it really well in the book. And I remember experiencing it that, you know, before you're on the floor, you can have resentments towards someone or you can be like, I'm sure she's a bitch and hopeless or I'm sure she's stuck up and has never done this before or he went to Harvard. How good can he be at this? And then once that thing, once that night starts, specifically at somewhere crazy busy because there's kind of different types. But if you're at somewhere that's packed, you have to turn those tables Um, you know, it's a culturally relevant place to be. Totally. So, uh, you know, a reviewer could be coming in, like Anna Wintour's on table 42. You know, it's all very high pressure and exciting. As soon as that starts, like all the kind of labels are stripped away and you're only as good as you are under pressure. Absolutely. I mean, that is so true and so articulate um, because in those moments of conflict and that kind of warfare state that occurs on the floor, it doesn't matter where you went to school and it doesn't matter how many other jobs you've had in different cities. It's like whether you can perform and that's very New York. I think in a lot of industries across the board, like your resume falls to the floor. Mm. Well, I think this has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you. We should cheers again. Yes, we should. For the audio. Cheers. Um, Thank you. And everyone should read this book. It's just beautiful and it's uh, kind of a window into a world that I love. So thank you for making the book. You really wrote the book I wanted to write but never could have done it so beautifully. Thank you very, very much. That was fantastic. Great. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.